Hi, and welcome to Insecurity. My name is Matt. And my name is Max. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you? I have spent heaps and heaps of time trying to get this new sound set up to work. Well, I'm telling you right now, you sound fantastic compared to what you sounded like before. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad to hear it. So now, just for anyone listening, we're now working off of a mixing board. Um, I'm recording everything and we're going to hope that it works. It's a Firewire mixer, the Mackie Onyx uh, 820i. And I've been having some problems with clicks and pops going during the recording. So if anyone uh, has any feedback or any tips or tricks on how to avoid that on a Firewire device, please let us know. Um, you can always send feedback emails to feedback at in-security.org. Visit the website and leave comments, anything you want. Do you have any follow-up or anything to add this week? Uh, as far as errata, there's none of that. Nothing that I thought that uh, we should have added to it because I think that we're not really done. We're not really done with, with networking? We're not really done with networking. We've started the first little bit of networking and now let's get it to the next level. Let's, let's do like a network squared, like a, a networking of networks kind of thing. Network two, electric boogaloo. Boop, 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 boop. All right. So networking squared. All right. So last time, previously on insecurity.org, we had listened to how uh, these, these computers talk together um, over physical wires and through these Ethernet packets, which is the protocol we settled on. There's other ones, but definitely the most popular. And the, if you recall, it's like an envelope that's traveling over the wire or in our example, it was like a vacuum tube containing stuff inside of it. Well, as we continue through the different layers of this, there's more like envelopes within envelopes within envelopes within envelopes that make up this kind of stack that's commonly referred to as the TCP IP stack. We're going to talk about TCP IP. But before I get ahead of myself, just remember the concept that Messages are embedded within other messages. So at the line layer, you can only go as fast as the medium would take you, as far as that twisted pair would take you. And then we had a limit to those actual Ethernet frames of a maximum of 1,500 bytes traveling along the wire. And so everything else is going to take a little bit of space to you know, set itself up and have that beginning part of its communication, the header, Part, and then it's going to have a payload part. So every time you add layers to it, you're actually going to get less and less space for the message to go through. And that's things like the, at the end, you, I think you mentioned last time, a checksum. Right. And there's a checksum at the end to make sure that the, the size of what is coming through didn't get mudged in the middle. Right. All right. So we had discussed how computers talk to each other on a network. And that's great for one location where you have like a local area network, like in an office or a home, right? But how do we bridge out between different office locations or get from one person's home to another person's home, for instance, for a Skype conversation? So last time you mentioned the sneaker net being the one that you just run back and forth. So is there like a bicycle net? <laughs> nope, no. Nope. City bus net. Sneaker net means that you're transporting the data over your sneakers. You still wear sneakers when you ride bikes and buses. Therefore, we need some way of doing this electronically. So we expand the local area net to a wider area, wide area network. Or a WAN? A WAN for short. Huh. Correct. Uh, you can have a more localized one called a municipal area network. But I mean, WAN, MAN, it's pretty much the same thing, just little bit longer distances. Back in the mid late sixties, there's a, a group working for the military in the U S called the defense advanced research project agency or DARPA for short. And they're figuring out, so we can create these one way communications. We could probably extend that out a larger area, but what happens if one piece of wire gets cut or bombed or whatever? then we're really not in the optimal place to keep communicating. It, it, this single point of failure would cause a big problem. So they started fleshing out these, these different ways of communicating and they were connecting universities together because universities commonly house 
military projects for them. And it's important to have this information flow. And this was before many people other than academia were using networks. So they set out this project called the ARPANET. And the beginning throughout the mid seventies, they were figuring out how to interconnect these things together. What protocols they were designing the protocols to communicate this ARPANET. In the late seventies, they were able to get multiple universities over large geographic distances to communicate to each other and testing out. If you drop a link between university A and B, can university A still communicate to university B by going through university C? This whole concept of routing the message through the different pathways that were established began. And what is termed after that is the TCP IP protocol suite. And it stands for transmission control protocol slash internet protocol. But there's a whole bunch of sub protocols built into this. And these are important for being able to move this from one location to the other. So for instance, the most popular parts are the IP part, which we touched on previously, which we'll go into a little bit more detail on. And then there's the TCP part and the UDP part and the ICMP part, which we'll go into more detail on as well. And there's some other periphery protocols and there's higher level protocols uh, and there's lower level protocols. And we'll see what we have time for. But keeping in mind that we're discussing this internetworking from the context of security and flaws against it and defenses for it. That's kind of the context that we'll start at this time. And it's still a fundamental course. We're still just kind of discussing why these things exist the way that they do so that we can build on it and have later conversations and dip back into this without having to recover the topics we've talked about before. So I I touched on it before. There's the concept of these different pathways that can go out kind of like how you have in a local area network, you have a switch with all of these people interconnected to it through these different wires. You also have the same concept over the internet as a whole. You have different wires coming out of a device called a router, which says basically, is this message supposed to stay within my network or is it supposed to communicate with somebody else? And there's various ways of, of communicating across to other people. But assuming that we just have me and one LAN, you and another LAN, and only a couple routers in between. You know, there's my LAN, and then there's a router at the edge of it. So any packets that are destined for not my network would go out to that router. And then the router knows about your other router, so it would communicate to your router, and then your router says, okay, this is for inside of my network. So it would communicate with that LAN to find the right party inside. And this is built on what we've already discussed around the MAC addresses and the Ethernet. And then this is at the IP layer where it says, okay, you're communicating to this IP address. But the router itself is the end of the Ethernet address. Every time it goes from router to router to router, it's actually changing that source MAC address to be the router that it's coming out of. So that when we're communicating, it has a path back. So is it actively overwriting the the packets that are being sent out, like replacing the MAC address from the send from? It's actually reforming those frames that we're discussing, those Ethernet frames. So when it sends it out to the switch, the switch says, hey, who has IP address, some foreign IP address? And nobody answers, that's me, because it's not within the same range. The router says, you know what? I can get it there. Just send it my way. So then it sends it to the router. The router says, okay, I'm going to take this. I'm going to create a new ethernet frame for this and package this off and send it down the right route that I know it needs to go to. The other router gets it and it says, all right, this is my network. I see from the IP address contained within the ethernet frame. I'm going to repackage it up in my own Ethernet frame, saying that I am the source of it this time, and then send it through to my switch, who's going to direct it to the right place. So that's the that's the point of the router. It's just for routing things through and knowing which way to send it go, like one of those fast sorting machines. And then 
we had talked about that there's the different levels of different types of IP. There's actually a, a flag within it called a type. And so we use IP version 4 pretty much ubiquitously now out on the internet. People are transforming to IP version 6. So there's a, a subset of different features within them. IP version 6, more modern, got more security features built into it. Now, the difference between IP version 4 and IP version 6, other than the infinite number of basically IP addresses that IP version 6 can have and the very limited number that IP version 4 can have, that's the, the major difference. There are some security features that I had mentioned before, like the way that it handles IP security. There's a, a special protocol called IPsec or IP security, and it's something that's built into IP version 6. One of the problems with IP version 6 seems to be in the implementation, and most everything is a problem in implementation, not a problem in the actual standard itself or the protocol definitions for the IETF. In IPv6, it seems to be like the implementations that people are making are really starting at scratch with the IP version 4, and they're making a lot of the same mistakes. Some of the attacks that worked against IP version 4 are also becoming true against IP version 6. Right. So it's this cat and mouse game that needs to be played and people aren't really learning their lesson and they're making the same blunders. And then it, they find out the problem because someone's exploiting it and they fix it and then it gets honky-dory again. That's probably going to take a few iterations to get to that point. There's a concept right now of because IP version 4 and everybody house is getting like more and more devices like my phone when it joins my internal wireless network it will actually get an internal ip address through the dhcp server and it'll start talking out to the internet over that so eventually conceivably uh with a enough of a technological household where all of the lights have their own ip addresses maybe a stereo system has its own ip address we're going to run out of even 255 IP addresses within my house might not be enough anymore once everything starts talking on the internet. The internet of things. That's the term that's used. So the IP version 6, because it's got like basically, I can't remember what the number is called because it's so big. We're looking at 2 to the power of 128 or over 340 undecillion numbers. I'm going to throw it up in the show notes. Actually, my house, my own little private network could still have uh, basically the IP space of what the internet is now. I could have billions of devices in my network, in my home, and it still have a big enough address space to be unique across the universe of things. It, it is future-proofing things like space exploration and having internet routing like out there as well. As of right now, I feel like it's almost inconceivable for a, a single household to have that many devices just because of the current nature of things. Like 255 devices is inconceivable. Yeah, but everything's getting smaller and all of these electronics are getting cheaper. People are building more and more things into it, right? So you start looking at the multiple layers of things that you have in your house. So your thermostat, if you've got like a fancy Nest thermostat, that's IP-based. Your fridge might be IP-based so that it could get like a browser on the fridge and start sending you out notifications. It's you not unimaginable. It's just inconceivable. I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I just mean that we're, we're not really bound um, by the same logic as these things get cheap and, and the amount of control that we want to exert to get the variance that we need from computers is, is there. For the most part, I'm just going to talk about what's ubiquitously out there and really the common features uh, between version 4 and 6 that are really important to the rest of this conversation, building up the fundamentals. So within IP version 4, there is the sense of protocol, right? Of what sub-protocol is being contained within this IP packet. So before it was, you know, 
what type of traffic was contained within the Ethernet packet, what version of Ethernet was. Then there was that concept of, okay, what version of IP traffic is within it. And then it was what, what contained within the IP, is it going to be like TCP or UDP or whatnot? There's also another concept is that now that we have this routing happening between, it's possible for a message to get lost out there going from one router to another router. If a router accidentally misdirects somebody, you know, it could go in a circle until it comes back to them. And because it's a computer, it's just going to do the exact same thing time and time again. So it could misdirect the person again in the wrong direction. And how do you stop these infinite loops from happening is there's actually something called the time to live within the packet. And it, it starts at a number that's, that it decides is a relative amount of relatively reasonable amount of different hops that it has to go through. And every hop that it goes through, every router that it goes through, that router decrements that number by one. And when that number hits zero, it's, it's dropped. And maybe a message goes back saying, yeah, I dropped this. It didn't hit where it was going to. So that's something called time to live. So if you expect it to have, you know, at, at most 50 hops to get to its destination, to be able to maintain the quality for that software that's using this, because there's always software that's using this above and beyond, right? This is just the common means of communicating across. So the upper communication will say, okay, give this maybe 50 hops that it could get to before, you know, for instance, the Skype conversation, before there's going to be too much lag for the audio to come through and the response to happen. After that, we'll just throw up this message just saying that connection is bad. Is 50 hops an arbitrary number that you're picking for this example or is 50? It is. No, it's a completely arbitrary number. Depends on the application above and what they decide to be um, the amount. I think the maximum is 255. So does it do something like a trace route before to try and figure out what an optimal path would be between? And then based on something like that, it, it picks and chooses? Not really. The, the routers are responsible for routing information. The upper level protocols rely on the routers to do their job and know where things are to go. There's just this layers of trust that these things can get through and that they can do it in the quality and time span that, that they require, right? So the upper level protocols just say, okay, you're required to send this in maybe 50 hops, right? And I'm going to give you this number as the time to live. And every time it passes through a hop, it's going to decrement. And if it can't get there, I'm just going to handle it as an application and say, look, I've thrown this out there and not heard an answer back. Something's wrong. I feel it really sort of maybe ironic is the right word. Maybe ironic's the wrong word, but it's the first word that comes to mind that while we're discussing this, we're having such Skype issues. So the time to live or the timeout is essentially based on network hops and not, uh, not an actual time span. Correct. The time is, is in the amount of hops that it has. It's not an actual clock type time. Okay. All right. So then there's another concept of fragmentation. As I'm sending these messages across, if for some reason congestion is bad, it might be that the upper level application says, you know what, we can't get this through in the amount of time that we need to. What if we just scale back the size of what we're sending? So if we can, you know, if the message is supposed to be that full 1500 bytes that fits into the Ethernet packet, but we can't fit it in there. We have the ability to actually snip it in half and send two fragments of the message across. So first packet has the first part of the message. Second packet has the second part of the message. And they just find out whatever routes they can to route this message through all of these interconnected routers by the protocols that are associated with the router. So they don't have to travel down that same route. But at the other end, the computer gets it. And it says, okay, here's a fragmented packet. This one says it's number zero. Here's a fragmented packet. This one says it's number one. Zero comes before one. I plunk it together. It says that there's no more fragments coming. So then I'm just going to relay this to the application as, as the message. So there's this layer of abstraction as you go down that stack in TCP IP. 
that it says, okay, I've done the hard work for you. I've received and sent and managed all of these interconnections together. This is the message that you need. And it just passes that message once it's got the complete message on. So this is, this is all TCP IP. This isn't the, the, the hardware and the router doing this automatically. It's the computer that's sending the information first, right? So these flags are within TCP IP, but it is definitely the routers and the computers that are making the decisions based on the messages that they get back when they're trying to communicate. Okay. So there's the possibility that something's going through and it's just, it's just drowning from load, right? So it'll send a message back to people saying, oh, just slow down a little bit, add a little bit more time between your packets or make smaller sizes so that I'm just not getting flooded with all this stuff. Okay. And then the last really important part of the IP packet is it's got something containing the length of the payload, which is that data part that's, that's the actual message, not just the headers. And it's actually got that, that payload itself. So that the upper level protocols would exist within that payload or data segment. And it's just says, okay, this is how long it's going to be just so that the person can anticipate it on the other end and that it can be more dynamic. So again, protocol, the time to live, the fragmentation, the size of the packets, and then how often it tries to send them and then the length the, the, and the payload. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So those, those are the really core features that are common across IP version four and IP version six that we need to understand um, so that we can kind of understand some of the attacks that are against this as well. And to make matters more complicated, when the computer special hardware that communicates over these protocols is set up, it, it needs to be configured with a bunch of different things, right? So there's the hardware MAC address that we talked about last time that's, all, that's distinct to the network interface card. And then there's the configuration within the operating system so that the kernel knows how to handle this networking. It, it needs to be defined what its IP address is. So in the previous time, we used the example of like 192.168.1.30 or something like that. And then there's the subnet mask or sometimes called the net mask. And this is defining how big the LAN is. And it's important to define how big the LAN is because it needs to know kind of when it's hit the edge of that, there's, there's the concept of sending out a broadcast over IP traffic as well as the broadcast over Ethernet traffic that we were talking about before, which is the same concept. It's just at a higher protocol stack within that, that frame, uh, within that stack, whatever. And then there's also the computer needs to know, hey, if this message isn't for anybody internal and I need to send it out, I need to know what the router's IP address is. So something called a default gateway. Domo arigato, Mr. Roboto. Oh, no. Only a little bit. The subnet mask, how, how does that define the number of, of machines on the network? Because from all of the... Uh, amateur network setup things that I've ever been involved in. Everyone by default just uses 255.255.255.0. Yep. So what that is stating is that there are a maximum number of 256 hosts starting from zero to dot two five five at the end. Mm-hmm. So that mask is saying anything with a, uh, remember when we were doing the, the numbers? Yep. Anything with a one in the different bit area, that's that's like not possible to be a unique thing. And then the parts that are zero are capable of being unique. So you overlay the IP address in bit notation, in binary notation, so ones and zeros. And then you overlay that with the ones and then you do an end on that. And then wherever it's a zero, then it's within the same network. So if I'm a 192.168.1.0, 
255.0 type of uh, network. Mm -hmm. And then I've got a mask of 255.255.255.0. All of those 255s are going to occupy all of those first three octets within the IP address. So those, those first three bytes out of the four bytes that make up an IP address. And that last one means that everybody within my network is going to start with a 192.168.1. And then that last little zero to 255 is going to be unique. And so that's the one that you should be paying attention to. Exactly. So for instance, if I go 192.168.2.0, it's, is it going to throw a wobbly or what is it going to do? So Just it's going to say, it's going to say, this is not within my broadcast range. This is not within my LAN. I have to go through this gateway to route the message to it. Okay. Because the, it's, it's a two versus a one in that third little decimal place, right? Yeah. Okay. There's a couple of reserved addresses within that. The zero is a reserved and the 255 is a reserved address within it. And those are to handle things such as broadcast. One of the other protocols that above IP that it'll be discussing is something called Internet Control Message Protocol or ICMP or as everybody knows it, pings. There's this specially formatted protocol that sends out a ping request and then it'll go through the routes that IP allows it to go through. And then the other side is known to say, hey, once you receive this and you're the final destination, send back a reply. And that's the ping pong type thing, right? So it's the answer of saying, yep, I got your ping. And then the computer that sent out the ping does math on it and says, I sent out this ping um, at this time frame. I've received it this many milliseconds later. Therefore, it took this long to send and receive. Cool. So, so that's very useful in just knowing that the host on the other end is up and working correctly and that your message can go through the different pathways to get there. And that's often used in troubleshooting. The ping. Yes. Does the other computer really answer Pong? No. Just says ICMP request. The other one says ICMP reply in the flags that are set within it. And that's basically it. I bet you it still answers Pong. The interesting thing is that there's a whole bunch more fields within ICMP. People have figured out how to make these shadow networks communicate the upper protocol stacks over ICMP. And it basically looks invisible to most people because they just ignore ICMP. It's nifty. All right. What else? There's one really useful part of this ping other than just knowing, hey, can you receive it or not? And it's this concept called traceroute. So to figure out the pathways that your message is going to, you can actually start off with a time to live on that message of one. And then as it stops, as it dies throughout the route, the router will send back, yeah, I was unable to deliver this. And so then you increase it another one and you get one hop further down that route, right? And then it passes back saying, yeah, I died at this point. And you just keep doing that and keep incrementing it. And then you're able to path out the most likely route that that packet's going to take. And when it replies back, it tends to reply back with the names of the router that killed it. Potentially. Definitely the IP address though. But ICMPs for the individual computer, useful for ping and this traceroute concept. But ICMP also has a ton of other really important stuff that routers use themselves. So it's able to negotiate timestamps through it. It's able to send these source quench messages, which is just like that. Stop, I'm drowning. You got to you gotta back off for a bit. And there's other messages for routers like broadcasting out, hey, I'm your neighbor. Come speak to me. And there's other ra special routing protocols that do that. But at its very basic, ICMP is able to handle that. All right, then there's, uh, there's another separate protocol that a lot of messages go over, and it's called User Datagram Protocol, or UDP for short. Some of the key features of UDP 
are that it doesn't keep track of who came first and what's next. It's a one-way message and it just contains its information and whether you receive it or not, it's sent and it's satisfied. So it doesn't track whether it's received? That's right. There's, there's no negotiation for the information that's being sent across. So it's just, a, it's called stateless. And the fact that it's just sending the message out there to where it thinks the destination is. And it's relying on IP to get it there. But it's not really listening for any return information on that. So it's really good for something called lossy communication, which lossy means Hey, if you lose something, I don't care. You know, it might just make a little robot voice in Skype. But at the end of the day, you know, I've sent all of the information that I need to send there. And however it was interpreted on the other side, it's not super important because it's really just for perhaps humans to hear. So that would be things like Skype audio. Skype and Netflix, mostly streaming stuff. It's, it's really good at that. There are some implementations of ping in Unix that also use this. And it's just like, hey, if you don't hear it, whatever. I'm just going to keep sending you this, this stream of one way. And, you know, if you don't answer, that's fine. But for those understandings to happen, it's the applications that are built on top of it at the higher level. They have to have all of that intelligence built in to be able to make that detection. So when our Skype uh, was actually going robot I saw on my screen that Skype itself was detecting that the data rate was, was low, right? And it was complaining of congestion. So that's what I mean by the, the application that's actually relying on these protocols has to make that determination itself. Because there is some back and forth communication happening, but it's not on that packet level. Right. So then all of the, any, any breakdowns that happen can still be noticed, but just... It's up to the actual application. It's not going to be doing it on the network layer. That's right. That's right. Um, and there's also uh, now there's this new concept. And we're talking about UDP. And it's also going to be there in TCP. And it's this concept of a port. Right? So there's this whole byte reserve for a port number. Because it's a resource that's going to get closed off on my computer as a listener for this information. So Skype's going to open up a port on my machine and say, I need to listen on this UDP port, perhaps 80 or, or something. I don't know. When you install Skype, a port above 1024 is chosen at random as the port for incoming connections. You can configure Skype to use a different port for all incoming connections if you wish. But if you do, you must open the alternative port manually. There you go. Thank you very much for that, Robot Matt. So for Skype, it's, it's listening over a distinct UDP port for an incoming connection request to it. And it's saying, if I receive anything over this port number, I know that this is for Skype. My computer is able to handle that in the kernel. And it's also able to handle Netflix coming into it at the same time. It's also able to handle like a Google Hangout or anything else that might need UDP. Because it's assigning each of these services a different port. So it'll communicate over a distinct port. Um, so me as the listening destination for Skype, I'll have my own um, UDP port number that's assigned for that call, apparently. And you as a sender will use a different port number to send out from. And uh, like what you had just read out says that typically ports 0 to 1024 are reserved ports that aren't dynamically allocated to calls, for instance. So there might be a, a base one for Skype and then it'll allocate the call a special port number above 1024. Like I think for the duration of this call, uh, uh, port number uh, 40005 is what I have an established connection on. And so this port number gets included in the headers in the UDP? That's what I'm saying. Yep. And so I'll, I'll know that when I receive a packet from your source port and your source IP address, I'll know how to reply back to you. I'll reply back to that source port as well as that source IP address. 
so that when your computer receives it, it's able to you know take that message apart and put it back together saying that it's from me. Right. And so we could have multiple Skype communications. If we had a third person in this call, right, it would be a different IP address and a different source port. Wait, so I wouldn't use the same one to send out to both people? You would use a different one than the other participant sending messages to me, potentially. I mean, you could be using it the same. It is randomly chosen, so we don't know. Uh, you, you could be using the same one, but the fact that the IP address is different means that it's not going to be going back to you. Right. So it's just a way of, of your personal computer saving that communication pathway for the return message that's going to happen. All right. Are we significantly in the weeds on this? Absolutely. All right. So what are some of the downsides of actually not knowing the state of the, the message as it's going across? Can you think of any? Loss. Right. That'd be the biggest one that I would think of. Is okay. if it doesn't really bother to check to make sure that you received it, then who knows where that information has gone, whether it's been received, whether my signal is coming through clear or not. Yeah, and that, that is certainly a risk with using that protocol, but one that's the application layer can really build up an understanding for. There is one other security problem with this. Because there's no back and forth communication necessary for establishing the communication channel, I could pretend to be you and send a message to a third party on behalf of you. Say Right, and add something to that. Like in our previous example, maybe if a printer is listening on a UDP port, I could insert a bad word into that print traffic saying that it's from who you, who it's expecting to print out a document from. And then does UDP have starting to end bits to it, to its transmission? No, no. So what we're going to talk about next is TCP. So then you can piggyback on top of my outgoing message. You can say, okay, well, this message has gone out. I've just found that there's a UDP message going by. Jump on top of that. Yeah, all that it cares about is here's the the payload of the information. This is how big it is. Here's the source IP or here's the source port. Here's the destination port. Everything else is handled by the IP, which says, okay, this is the source IP address. This is the destination IP address. Here's the routing. None of this contains anything about, hey, are you listening for this message? Yeah, I'm listening for this message. Okay, it's really coming from me kind of communication back and forth. So that's something that's actually handled by TCP, a transmission control protocol. And it still has that source port and that destination port, but it's in the way it establishes its communication. It forms this state full connection, meaning we've done a handshake to negotiate that it's coming you understand that there's a sequence in which we're communicating and these are all used within the, the messages to keep communicating across. And benefits of this are that you can't just inject a message without you know, screwing up the rest of the communication that's occurring or to happen. So as a bit of callback from our previous episode, this would be the, um, the phone call example again. You've got your greeting, you've got your message in between, and then you've got your um, sign off. So you've got the handshake, you've got the content, and then you've got your end. It's actually, it's actually like a layer on top of that too, though. Okay. Because there's, it's almost like a, that with some sort of telegraph example inserted within it. So it's, it's got a number for each packet that goes across saying, okay, this this datagram that I'm sending is going to, this is number one of however many, right? And you reply back and you say, this is my response number one. Then I send the next one and go, okay, this is my, this is my send two. And you go, okay, I'm responding to your send two. And I go, okay, this is my send three, four, and five across. And you just go, okay, I've received up to five. I'm, I'm ready for the next bit, right? So there's this whole numbering system that goes along with it called the sequence. And the sequence is communicated along with all of these other flags. But the most important ones is that I'm going to be tracking a sequence for the bits I send, and I'm going to be tracking a sequence for the responses I get back from the other party. 
And then just because of the way that network trafficking can work, you could be saying, okay, well, this is my send six and this is my send seven and this is my send eight. And you can reply back, okay, I've received seven. I've received eight. Okay. Now I've received six. Right. That well, they can, they can end up arriving out of order, but because they've got those signatures on there, then it knows, okay, well, I've got six, six should be in front of seven. I'm just going to put it there now. Yep. And that's why it, um, it typically only responds back in the order that it should numerically get up to. Okay. Right. So it'll say it, it'll receive seven, it'll receive eight. It won't send a response back yet because it knows that it's still waiting for a six. So then it'll receive the six back and it'll go, I've received up to eight. Okay. But yeah, certainly it, so there's this concept with TCP where it's negotiating this handshake. So the handshake is, there's these flags within it called control bits and they do all sorts of different things. But the most important ones right now are, uh, I'm sending a synchronous bit out saying, I'm trying to initiate a handshake across. And then you receive that and say, I'm sending back an acknowledgement bit to that. And I'm also sending my own synchronous bit back saying, I'm trying to do a handshake to you. And then at the end you say, yes, I've, I've seen that synchronous and I'm, I'm acknowledging it. So it's called a sin, synac, ack. And that's what a, a TCP handshake as it's called is made up. So this is the establishment of that communication channels. So you would have received my, uh, sin, sequence bit. I would have received your acknowledgement sequence bit. We'd have formed these up to be a communication channel and we're now tracking each other. So somebody on the outside who says, yeah, I'm just going to send in a random message into this communication. If it's not within the right sequence, I'm just going to hold on to it for later or, or not, or just drop it. Right. So even if somebody sends it out, the way the protocol is made is I'm not going to be able to acknowledge them because my response would go to you. And both the computers are going to say, you know, this is way out of bounds of what we're communicating with. There's no way somebody would have been at this high of a sequence number or this, there's no way that I should be acknowledging something that's below a handshake in sequence number. I'm just going to drop it. So significantly more secure. Significantly more, I wouldn't say secure because secure. Well, it's it's a part of security. Okay, so let's get into this now. Security is made up of three major pillars. Okay. There's the confidentiality of the message, right? So that's like a privacy component to it that we're not having people eavesdrop on the message. There's the integrity of the message. So somebody hasn't tampered with the message, right? And then there's the availability of it. So the availability is stating that, you know, someone hasn't denied the service to us. We can still communicate. There's no bomb that has blown up the wire or whatnot. So those, those are the encompassing aspects of security. All three of those together really need to, to be present to have a secure system, quote unquote. So someone could still be eavesdropping in we might not have any privacy for our communication because we're not protecting the privacy of the communication. But what we are doing is we're assuring an integrity to the message itself. Okay. So there's a, there's a factor of security there, but I wouldn't say that it's a secure message because then we have all this extra great stuff that people overlay on top of it to ensure that the privacy is there, which is encryption. Right. We'd talked about, you know, the setting up and configuration of this as requiring all of these different components to it. And uh, we've talked about how people communicate over IP addresses. None of this really works for people. I mean, it's doable, right? I can remember what IP address I have to talk to if I only have to talk to like three or four. But heck, we're on the internet now, right? There's like, there's so many people I've never even talked to before. There's no way I could know what somebody's IP address is. It's just a four byte number, right? So there's this concept. Um, the first one that's probably more important is this concept of 
the configuration. So when my computer starts up on my LAN, I can have something hard set on my computer. Every time I'll get the same IP address. Every time I'll expect the router to be at the same place. I'll have certain configurations set up. But if I bring my computer over to your house, that might conflict with an IP address that you've already set up. Right? So there should be a way of relying on the infrastructure that's there to dynamically assign my system the IP address, the broadcast range, the, the subnet, the default gateway, that kind of stuff. Versus assigning them all yourself and making them static. Yes, exactly. So there's this concept of a dynamic host configuration protocol, or DHCP for short, which all of our home routers do. And in these corporate environments, we have dedicated servers to handle this kind of stuff or at least have a function of a dedicated server to handle this, to track which computers at what IP address. Right. All right. So then there's also the concept of, like I stated before, not being able to track who's at what IP address, right? I, we refer to each other as, you know, Matt and Max, and if we want to get super technical. We can add in each other's last names or last and middle names, right? But we don't refer to each other as our social insurance numbers, right? Those are supposedly the unique aspects that the government tracks us by, but it's just, we, we shorten it down. We have these ways of remembering people that isn't a number that doesn't really work so well for computers because they don't make those loose correlation and attachments. So there's this centralized repository that's trusted of people who track what names were associated with what IP addresses. So when our buddy listener wants to go and comment on the podcast, he goes to in-security.org and he relays that on to something called the, the dynamic name service. Is that right? Domain name. Domain name service. Wow. Thank you. Um, domain name service. And he goes up to the server that's local for him and says, you know, can you just translate this to an IP address for me and plunk it into my browser? Cause I don't really need to know this stuff and it'll happily go and communicate across up the chain of domain name services till it gets to the .org top level one. And I'll say, Hey, you're .org. Tell me who's at in dash security. And it'll reply back with the IP address for in dash security. And if there is a breakdown even further for www dot in dash security.org, it would return that back. And so my computer would then say, Hey, IP address X port number 80 for HTTP. Give me your HTML and my browser will interpret it. So it's the browser that's negotiating the, the product, the upper level protocol of how to format the information coming back to it. So it's readable for people. And it's relying on the downstream communication protocols of the kernel to send out this message to the right destination, do that backend communication with the DNS servers, get the right IP address, and then it just goes back up that stack. So it goes down the stack, goes up the stack, and it presents the information that it's received. So essentially the DNS servers are a giant phone book. The difference being on the internet, you can't have the exact same name as anybody you've got your individual IP address and then you have to have an individual domain name. You can have, you know, Microsoft.net or Microsoft.org or Microsoft.biz, but not.com that's taken. Actually, I'm sure all of those are taken by Microsoft, but suffice to say you can't have the individual one. So even though, You've got your specific IP address. Whenever there's a request that's sent out to find out who is .org, you're not going to get a bunch of responses. It's just going to look, it's going to find the one. And then that's tied to the IP address. In, in the case of in-security, it's tied to an IP address for the people that we have hosting our website. That's right. And so it's not actually one of our home computers or anything like that. It's going to a service that does this and that, that IP address can be changed. We can specifically go and say, 
you know, I'm moving from one host to another and we can change that. And then that updates in the, in the DNS entries. Yeah. And it's really cool the way that it's structured in this hierarchical fashion. So you've got your root DNS servers that are, uh, capable of housing all of the initial top level domains and say, okay, for all of your .org requests, you're going to go to talk to this server. For all of your .net requests, you're going to talk to this group of servers. For all of your .com requests, it's this group of servers. And then they also split to further, to, to further levels saying, hey, if you want to talk to Microsoft, you, know, you can go to the DNS server here. And so you can have like an infinitely scalable for all of those dots. You can go to a different hierarchical server within it. And then there's sub addresses and stuff. Like for instance, you can put www dot. And then if you put anything else in before it, it could specifically lead to other things. For instance, some sites use mail dot and then whatever their URL is. Yep, for sure. And and so those will lead to different servers or at least different IP addresses um, or they might lead to the same one because you could have multiple records in DNS. So you could have a mail, you could have a www, you could have a gopher, you could have, uh, you know, XYZ and it could all point back to the same IP address, but it's just these different records within the DNS record. Sorry, I didn't want to just throw out URL as a term. It's um URL is essentially uniform resource locator. True. Um, also known as the name with which your website is. The, the thing that's looked up on the DNS entry is the uniform resource locator. Yeah. So I just kind of wonder, you know, back in our day, there was people that had an AOL internet account. And there was this whole naming convention for, for how to allocate a resource within AOL. And it's like these people didn't even know that there was the whole internet out there that they could get out to, or some people, I should say. Um, and I wonder if it's the same nowadays with people on Facebook. They're like, Facebook is the internet to them. If I, if I, need, to, if I need to go and find out what's happening this weekend, I'll just ask Facebook. Yep. There's a really interesting anecdote or breakdown or problem that happened at one point because by default in most of the web browsers, if you type in the site that you're looking to go to without .com or any kind of extension, then by default what it did was it would just go and search on whatever your search engine was. And for an, a time, some guys wrote this article about Facebook that ended up getting higher ranked on Google than Facebook. And so all these people would go into their web browsers. They typed in Facebook. Um, this site came up first. So they clicked on it as that's all that those people knew how to do. So then they loaded up Facebook and started typing in their usernames and passwords into the comments field and then complaining about how they hated the new look of the new Facebook. Wow. So there's, there's a bunch of different really powerful messages within that. Yeah, it, it, there's so many levels of that that we should really, um, we could potentially touch on that as its own show. That so, was just, so a, just a fun fact. That, that is really cool. And it talks about the power of these various things that we've talked about so far. So if you can own the DNS resolution for somebody, you can tell anybody where to go, right? to make their communication happen. And you can rely on the IP address traffic for it to get routed to the right place, but you can misroute somebody by saying, okay, I am facebook.com, right? So for anybody trying to communicate to facebook.com, they go that way. Okay. Or else there's, and, and there's various ways you could do that, right? So now that the browsers are resolving things for you, right? There's a certain amount of stuff that like in Chrome, if I want to type up like in dash security.org, it will do some sort of determination of, am I doing a search 
within the address bar or am I doing the actual address that I want to go to within that address bar? So potentially this Facebook person just did Facebook and got a higher page ranking because of search engine optimization and getting the highest page ranking on Google or Bing or whatever. But, um, but potentially there was a problem with how the browser was making that determination too. Don't hold me to this, but I think with the Chrome, I think they call that bar up the top, the Omni bar or the magic bar or something like that. Firefox has the same thing. But I believe by default, if you type in enough information for it to be a web address, then it'll start by trying to get the DNS entry for that web address and it'll do a lookup for it. So for instance, if you type in in-security.org, that has enough parameters for it to potentially be a website. If it then goes, tries to find in-security.org and doesn't come back with the DNS uh, resolved, then it's going to default to a search. If you do in-security without the .org, you're missing enough parameters. So it's going to, by default, assume that you're trying to search. And so then it'll go off and it'll come back with the search results. In the instance that you're doing something like Facebook or Hotmail, if you don't include the .com or the .org or the .dot whatever it may be in this instance .com, then it's going to do the same thing and it'll resolve this as a search as opposed to you trying to get to the page. And that's what ended up resulting in all these people getting um, a search for Facebook and an article that somehow had a higher page rank on Google search than Facebook itself. The lesson there is that as we rely more on technology to outsource the brain functions that we have to work like a robot, like we were doing beforehand, the more things can go wrong. I like that you used moron in there. <laughs> I ran into the exact same problem. At one point I was playing popular online video game and I tried to access the armory for popular online video game. I never remember what the, the URL is for it. The URL is for it. So I typed in, um, armory, at a popular video game. And the first hit that came up, I clicked on blindly. Google has a thing where they allow people to have sponsored results. So they've got ads that show up at the top and the ads are on a slightly different colored background so that it can be easily noticed and recognized as an ad. However, if you have a less than ideal screen, the LCD screens, if they're tilted at different angles, will potentially show colors differently. So you won't necessarily notice. And uh, a lot of people apparently were clicking on this top link, which was a sponsored ad that had these results. And that took you to a mock-up or a phishing site of popular online video games armory webpage. And as a result of that, you would be asked to log into the armory so that you could view your characters and view the other people's characters. And you log in by using your proper name. The login would fail and automatically forward you over to the proper armory site so that you could then try it again. You would try it again, not notice, get logged in and then have already sent your username and password off. As a result of that, my online profile was quote unquote hacked, but realistically not hacked in any way because I actively gave them the information by not being diligent. Yeah, I then let that's... the popular online video game people know exactly what had happened. And I'm assuming they followed up with Google. Hmm. Good old social engineering. Mm-hmm. Get you every time. But that was another uh, another fun anecdote. Indeed. Indeed. That was fun. And so there's really one other protocol that I wanted to cover, and that's this network time protocol. Uh, what NTP does is it's able to synchronize time against all of the internet to a common time that's housed by everybody. And time is super important to computers because it's able to do things such as synchronize logs between computers. So if you need to troubleshoot something, well, it synchronizes the clocks between the computers and that's the benefit of it is that the logs are synchronized as well. 
It's really important for certain cryptographic routines that are used for authenticating and keeping the, the time for that cryptographic changes that need to happen within it synchronized. So NTP is also something that's very much a necessity for enterprises and computers throughout the internet. That makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah. And, and it, the whole protocol is fantastic math, which is way above my head, but it does things like it's able to account for the amount of time that it takes a packet for the NTP protocol to get from one location to the other. And it, it really does this time shifting and it's constantly doing these checks for the time shifting. And it's a very robust protocol, probably like some of the others should be. Yeah, it's just, it, it's very, very needed. And I'm thankful that it's there. Nice. Alrighty. So we've gone on for a bit. We've had some issues. Maybe it's a sign that we should wrap this stuff up. Follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. Visit our website, www.in-security.org. You can visit the show notes at in-security.org slash EP005. And if you have any feedback or comments, email us at feedback at in-security.org. Yeah, love it, hate it. We want to know. We really just want to know what you, the listeners, are thinking about this. And keeping in mind that we're laying down a fundamental foundation for the rest of the shows to live on. We expect you to listen to all of these thus far. And if they're too slow, too fast, start too slow and then get too fast, you know, just let us know and we'll try to accommodate for it. All right. Well, you have yourself a great week, Max. Thanks. You too. Uh, talk to you soon and uh, have fun editing with your new gear. Huh. All right. Thanks.